0: Welcome to The ConFab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of The Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. There was a special election in Georgia's 6th Congressional District Tuesday. Fred Barnes is here to help us sort out what the election means for Democrats' and Republicans' chances in 2018. And then we're going to talk with Carlin Bowman about the state of political polling. What did pollsters get right and what did they get wrong in 2016? And have they learned any lessons going forward? All that coming up on the Confab. Now we get the confab going in fine form with Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Fred, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Good. So we, we're still hearing the reverberations of the Georgia Sixth District special election that was held Tuesday. Karen Handel beat the Republican, beats John Ossoff, the Democrat. Not necessarily what the polls were predicting, even
1: up until
0: late in the race. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they, uh, the polls predicted uh, pretty much consistently that John Ossoff, 30 years old and a, and and a guy who looked like a rising star in the Democratic Party would win and Karen Handel, um a, a sort of an unspectacular Republican, 55 years old, uh and the uh, it seemed like he was going to win, but he didn't. And what did he have to do to win? Well, you know, there was a uh, a jungle primary where all the candidates, Democrats and Republicans, ran in last April. And the two top ones uh, would be in a runoff if nobody reached 50 percent, and nobody did. But Ossoff got 48 percent. Poor old Karen Handel only got 17 percent because there were so many Republican candidates. So here they go into the primary, uh, from the primary, into the runoff two months later. And it's pretty clear... Uh, what Ossoff needs, he needs a few Republican votes to get him over 50 percent. He was 48 percent in the primary and it turned out he was 48 percent in the runoff. He just couldn't get them. And that was after
0: spending something like $25 million. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it was not all out of his own pockets, that's for sure. Uh, But he turned out to be a remarkable fundraiser. That may be the one thing that's remembered about his campaign, how this 30-year-old guy with not a whole lot of political experience raised all this money, and partly because he, in the beginning of his campaign, he ran as the anti-Trump candidate. And of course, there's a lot of rich liberals that like to give to candidates who were saying that, and they did. And there was a theory about how he would get those Republican votes. You know, there were a lot of people, Eric, I'm sure you know some of them, and I certainly do, uh, people who, oh, at the last minute voted for Trump. They were very reluctant. Uh, they didn't really like Trump. But then they finally said, gee, you know, the Supreme Court hangs in the balance and I, I can't vote for Hillary. And I shut my eyes and vote for Trump. And And so it was thought that there were a lot of those in this district in suburban atlanta a very wealthy highly educated district just seemed perfect for the, for there to be a lot of those people and and they'd be willing to jump to off. as it turned out none did yeah karen handel outperformed donald trump in the district <laughs> she did and uh uh and she and and the people who organized her campaign and other republicans as well everything they did kept republicans on board they, they were just not defections. He didn't what even... would they have
0: done that might have pushed people off the off the ship?
1: Well, they could have uh, uh, they could have done a lot of things. One of them can be uh, could have been to embrace Trump too strongly. But she had a loose and a friendly relationship with him, and, and he didn't interfere much. He tweeted a couple times, and he came down and raised a million dollars for her. Uh, and he was, it was clear he was out there, but he was not yelling and screaming at Georgia voters. And it seems that he showed a
0: little discipline himself in not demanding of her too much vocal support.
1: He didn't demand any, as it turned out, and, and she... Uh, did It <laughs> really didn't offer any. She did uh, at one point say, you know, I'm not a part of this administration. You know, she's running for Congress. That wouldn't be a part of the administration. Of course, the press went crazy and said, ah, she's separating herself from Donald Trump. And I guess in a way she was. But uh, uh, this race became so big, one, because of the money. Two, because Ossoff, uh, this 30-year-old, tall and handsome young man, was running. And particularly, he looked like the guy who was going to really embarrass Trump and steal uh, – and because of Trump, steal a House seat from
0: Republicans. So why does the media keep over-predicting how much Trump will hurt Republicans?
1: Well, you know, the, uh, the wish – uh, precedes uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever comes next. I mean, they, they uh, when you talk to people, and I've talked to a lot of them now in Georgia, who were strategists and pollsters and so on, who were interviewed by reporters. He said they had no interest in anything. All the questions were about Donald Trump, or maybe sometimes Jim Comey, <laughs> or, or, some, or something like Michael that. Michael
0: Flynn maybe thrown you, you know, in for good measure.
1: Indeed. They were not interested in any of the issues between the two candidates. Uh, the funniest thing are you was: su-
0: Are you suggesting that the media has a narrative that they have preformed in their mind mm-hmm. that it that they aren't just simply reporting on the facts as they find them?
1: Well, I would never say that, but uh, but you know, I mean, you uh, you you uh, you can sort of tell a book by the cover. So.
0: Democrats have a lot of theories about why John Ossoff mm-hmm. lost, and mm-hmm. perhaps preeminent among those theories is that he had started it with a negative take on mm-hmm. Trump, the hammer and tongs, but put the hammer and tongs away for the general election. Well, he
1: realized, uh, and I think correctly, that he'd gotten everything he could out of that. There wasn't much more to get uh, by being the guy who will make. Trump furious, you know that was his saying. And and actually he moved to the center. I mean this was but the Georgia. Democrats
0: now are saying, see he shouldn't have moved yeah. to the center. He mm-hmm. should he should have been full-throated in his mm-hmm. denunciation of Trump yeah. from start to finish.
1: What I think he concluded and I agree with him, what you didn't want to do was run a uh, an impeachment campaign to make that your election. You know you're trying to drive Trump out of office. The country at the moment I don't think is ready for that, or to the extent it's ready, I don't think it's ready in suburban Georgia uh, for that, in a district that has been traditionally Republican for a while now. And I I think he recognized that. He, I think he did the, the smart thing, and uh, uh, it just wasn't enough.
0: Now, if Democrats run against Donald Trump, Republicans run against Nancy Pelosi, mm-hmm. and there are some Democrats who in this aftermath are saying – you know maybe Nancy Pelosi is a problem.
1: she is a problem she 's seventy seven years old she doesn 't look it uh, and I would say that she is uh, g- gives a terrible interview and sounds like a dud. She is a very powerful, clever, and smart uh, uh, democratic leader and that 's how she and and her and her squad of aging Democrats stay on in the leadership when you look at the democratic uh, when you look at the at the Democratic, uh, all the Democrats in the House, they're old. I mean, I mean, they they look like they just came out of an assisted living home. And <laughs> what's funny about that is that the the Democratic
0: Party has staked so much on demographics, in mm-hmm. particular yeah. millennials being yeah. their voters, mm-hmm. and so you have this aged leadership trying to appeal to millennials mm-hmm. how does that work
1: well it it, uh, it it works because uh uh they're both sort of uh, on the left politically and young people are but young people, they tend to, you know, something happens with young people. You know, you know how they become conservative. It's because they grow older, they have children, and things like have that. Have to pay for college. I have to pay for college. Their kids' college. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, make the mortgage. Uh, look, or? I'm very sympathetic. I, I look, I could never be a Democrat. I could never be a liberal. But uh, I'm sympathetic to the younger people. <laughs> But few there are in the in the House uh, among Democrats or even in the Senate among Democrats, but particularly in the house i'm sympathetic to them when they say, geez, you know when when people see us uh and they see nancy pelosi and and all these other aging people they they're turned off by that As a matter of fact, Tim Ryan, who ran against Pelosi for a uh, Democratic leader in the House a few months ago, <laughs> said that that the uh, uh, Democrats and their message now are, are more, talk- are more toxic than Trump. I mean, that is the ultimate insult.
0: There were also in this race uh, some local issues, which really brings <laughs> mm-hmm. up the, the, the question of whether Tip O'Neill's old expression that everybody mm-hmm. repeats and repeats mm-hmm. and repeats, that all politics is local. Mm-hmm. We've been in a time where it appears that all politics mm-hmm. are
1: national. Mm-hmm. Um, which Which is it? Uh, Well, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. I mean, obviously, the main thing is you want to win. In this case what they wanted to create was something that didn't involve Trump that was just these two candidates a liberal and a conservative and and have them talk about those issues dividing them they could be national issues but they wouldn't be ones that involved Trump at all at least from a, a handle standpoint and and so they got it down to that they got it down to the ground in the district
0: and and in one way the the most local of issues was was on display in the race which is that John Ossoff didn't live in the district talk about a, a
1: local Here's the big question. Why in the world didn't he just rent an apartment in the district? It's just across town in in metropolitan Atlanta. It it wasn't for lack of funds. (laughs) He had plenty of money. He could have just rented an apartment, signed up, uh, registered to vote, and voted in his own election. As it turned out, he didn't do that and couldn't vote.
0: So... These races, these special elections, this was mm-hmm. the, the fourth of, uh, of a series of special mm-hmm. elections, mostly people who have left to be in the Trump cabinet. Right. Um, people keep predicting that they're going to show that Trump and the Republicans are in trouble mm-hmm. come the two, 2018 right. midterm elections. Mm-hmm. But now the Republicans keep winning these votes, not by a lot, but they do keep winning them. Are the Republicans at risk— of taking too much away and too, and being too optimistic about what their chances are in 2018?
1: Well, actually, I think they are. You know, these special elections have never been predictive. Uh, Republicans lost all the special elections leading up to the 2010 midterm election, where in the House they won 63 seats, mm. so uh, these mean a lot less uh, than the press would have you believe. So uh, Republicans uh, Republicans still have to face two things. One, in 2018, they're going to have a very difficult time holding on uh, to the House of Representatives. Democrats only need 24 votes in a midterm election that's not that many. uh, Democrats could easily do that. And secondly, if Democrats get the House, there's going to be big pressure for them to vote for impeachment against President uh, Trump. So uh, those things, those things have not been changed by this uh, victory against the polls in Georgia 6. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly
0: Standard. Thanks for joining us on the CONFAB.
1: I always enjoy joining you on the CONFAB.
0: And now we welcome to the CONFAB, Carlin Bowman, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she covers polling and public opinion research and all that kind of good stuff. Carlin, welcome to the CONFAB.
2: Delighted to be here.
0: So you've been looking at the 2016 election, which by all accounts was a disaster polling-wise, and yet you find that, uh, at least according to an American Association for Public Opinion Research study, that... um, the popular vote result overall at the national level wasn't so crazy off as people assume.
2: Absolutely. At the national level, the pollsters did one of the best jobs they've done since 1936 in polling history. And of course, those questions have been asked about who you're going to vote for since the 1930s. And so that's a pretty impressive accomplishment. It was the state polls that had so many problems and had very, very high error rates overall.
0: And, of course, the, the outcome for the Senate, for the House, these are all determined by state-level uh, voting. And, of course, a presidential election we think of as a national affair, but it really is the conglomeration of state voting yeah. rather than a national poll.
2: Serious campaign pollsters pay an enormous amount of attention to state polls in the final weeks of a campaign. They don't look as much at national level public opinion polls, but those, of course, are something that are popular generally.
0: So where were the polls wrong in particular this time around?
2: Well, they were certainly wrong in the industrial Midwest, Um, those states that tipped Donald Trump um, by small margins overall. A lot of the pollsters in those states didn't poll very late in the cycle. That was one of the problems they had. Another problem was that late deciders broke decisively for Donald Trump. That doesn't always happen. Late deciders often break evenly between the two parties.
0: And yet, we saw so much of the polling as it was presented to us during the 2016 election season as, with with a very high level of confidence. If how, how are they supposed to have a high level of confidence when they can't get results at the last minute and they can't predict how people are going to break at the last minute and it's a close enough race that how people break is going to determine what happens?
2: Well, I think that's a very big problem for the business going forward. And I think most of us got our news from the aggregators, those Mm. who go beyond the public opinion polls, HuffPost and the like. The and poll of polls. The poll the meta of polls, into which they add some special sauce in terms of their views. See, now I'm always a little worried when I hear special, <laughs> special sauce. sauce. Me too. Me it's, too. It's
0: the little black yeah. box in which things happen inside.
2: Absolutely. And of course they're looking at past performance in all of these states, um, how people have cast their votes in past performance. They're looking in many cases at actual um, people who voted in past elections in some of these polls because you can now sample people using voter files as opposed to a random sample, and that turns out to help accuracy in some cases. But I think the bigger problem was that many people in Washington and across the country were committed to, um, to use the vogue word, a narrative of the rising American electorate, minorities, millennials, and single women who were going to propel the Democrats forward— In fact, demography probably does favor the Democrats, while geography still favors the Republicans. But I think people were so committed to that viewpoint that the the information that they were getting from the aggregators um, actually caused the national dialogue to be very one-sided. I think there were a number of Democratic pollsters, particularly in the industrial Midwest, and one who told me that uh, she saw her numbers tanking in August and was begging for more resources in those states, and they were not forthcoming. I think the Clinton campaign I think, has a lot to answer for in terms of its perception of the race.
0: It's interesting. The Clinton campaign, uh, I was reading Shattered, which is a riveting reading. And one of the things that's interesting is that throughout the campaign, there was this huge emphasis on using big data so that you could be very efficient in your targeting of this, that, and the other, Um, and and a a sense that what information they had could be understood at such a specific level that they could put a dollar here but not Mm -hmm. here, put another 50 cents over here. And uh, that seems that they had a level of confidence in what their data meant and could tell them that was really not warranted.
2: Yeah. I I agree with that. Um, Big data, little data, the way that campaigns are run these days has changed very dramatically. And and perhaps this is another conversation, but I wonder often whether it's pushing polling as we've known it in the past, um, very much to the back burner um, in terms of campaigns overall. I think good campaign pollsters will tell you that they need to have focus groups. They need to have Good public opinion polls at the state level overall, but that that, that dialogue about the rising American electorate, I think, um, really caused us to take some wrong turns and caused the Clinton campaign in particular to take some wrong turns. If you look where Hillary Clinton went at the last part of the campaign, she was clearly uh, trying to pump up those particular demographic groups that Democrats believe will be, would have been helpful to them in 2016 and will be very helpful to them going forward.
0: And a lot of this secret sauce is in figuring out how much you think a particular demographic group is going to turn out and yes. weighting the information. I don't think that a lot of people realize the extent to which the raw data that's collected in polling is then manipulated and weighted before it ever gets reported. People are not getting raw polling data. They're getting right. data that is weighted for which voters the pollster thinks is going to turn out. And for example, in this 2016 election, uh, African-American voters did not turn out at nearly the rates that were predicted by the pollsters who were doing a lot of the weighting.
2: That's right. If you look at the African-American vote in 2008, the turnout rate was actually higher than the white rate in 2000, excuse me, in 2012. In 2008, the turnout rate among young African-Americans was higher than the turnout rate among young white Americans. And so so I think the expectation that African-American turnout would continue to be large Um, was something that was perhaps a reasonable expectation. If you look back to 2012, once again thinking about what the shape of the electorate would be, I think the Romney campaign thought the electorate would be a little bit more white than it turned out to be overall, and I think that spelled defeat for Mitt Romney. So this kind of waiting, very difficult to do based on past performance, past experience, um, does guide the polls as they get closer to the final days of the campaign
0: and yet we we keep looking to polls to tell us ahead of time what the outcome's going to be it's like we want to know before it's time to know and uh that doesn't seem to change the special election in Georgia, here we had another race where we kept being told by the pollsters, oh, the Democrats ahead, even though it's closing close at at the end, it's going to be razor thin. Turns out not to have been razor thin at all.
2: Absolutely. Four percentage points. And so that was a, a solid win, I think, for Miss Handel um, in the Georgia Six overall. The polls for the most part, and that race predicted a pretty close race. It wasn't quite as close as they had expected. But I think this is just another reason why the pollsters have a lot to answer for, not only in the United States, but also abroad.
0: Carlin Bowman, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, thanks for joining us on the CONFAB.
2: Delighted to be with you.
0: That's it for the CONFAB this week. Be sure to tune into to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.